Hasidic community, you can't really explore yourself. And that is something I'm not willing to give up on. It's a very kind of a narcissistic point of view, is that they are the only people on earth that God loves and then everyone else is deserving of God's hate. My mother had warned me that there were these straight people, meaning people who are part of mainstream society. So I went to school prepared to look out for them and ended my first day realizing they were all straight. We were the only people who weren't. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Each week, we explore the beliefs that shape our world. Today, we revisit conversations from our 2016 Escaping Religion series, first-person reflections on growing up inside small, insular faith communities and then later choosing a different path. Series producer Laura Quarrell brings us this story. I spoke last time to my parents, like, the day after I got divorced. To them, it's like someone who is throwing away eternity over materialistic things that only exist in this world. He's not worth nothing. To them, I'm worthless. We begin with Loser Torsky. Yes, it's Loser. That's spelled L-U-Z-E-R. It's one of the less popular names in the Bible. When Loser was 22 and already a married father of two, he decided to leave the only world he had ever known, a large Hasidic Jewish group in Brooklyn. He told his story to Josh Gleason in 2011, when he was just beginning his new life in the secular world, completely on his own. This is me singing at a wedding, at a Hasidic wedding. Uh, I used to be a singer at weddings. I miss it very much. I wish I could keep doing it, but uh, you can't not be religious and uh, sing at Hasidic weddings, you know? It just doesn't go together. I always questioned the religion and I always wanted to be able to, to watch movies. I always wanted to be able to fall in love with someone and have sex with her even though I'm not married. I wanted to have it and be religious. <laughs> I didn't know of any other life. That was the only life I knew. But uh, now I decided I don't want that life. I have no future in that life. Maybe there is something out there I want to do, which I can do if I'm an Orthodox Jew. In the Hasidic community, you can't really explore yourself. And that is something I'm not willing to give up on. This is where I live. This is like a student housing. I have my own bedroom, shower room and a bathroom in the middle of every floor, which all the people who live on the floor share. I got here a little desk and my computer, my laptop. Now, this is the other bed in the room, which is usually made for a roommate, but since I got no roommate, this is the place I dump everything. This is all my dirty shirts right there. I don't have a laundry bag, so I use a garbage bag, a regular garbage bag. Most of the time I do dress like a very strong Hasidic Jew because that's the only clothes I have. I wear the side curls and like a beard. I mean, because a Hasidic person is, is who I am. It's my identity. I 
just can't get used to be looking differently and to be acting differently. Even though I hate the way I look and the way I talk and the way I act. You know, when someone asks me, how are you? I still say, Baruch Hashem, thank God. I'm not even sure there is a God. <laughs> well, thank God. You know, it's like, here's the thing. Even though the Lutherski that has lived for the past 23 years is a Hasidic guy, that's not who I am. I don't feel that's me. So even though what I'm doing now is the real me, it's just not what I'm used to. Okay, now let's start looking for work. Craigslist. Alright, so what I do is I search first like kosher. The job in the kosher industry. Oh, some new stuff here. Two months ago, I started looking for work. And someone asked me, do you have a resume? This is exactly what I did. Just what I did now. Quiet. I didn't know what to say. Number one, I didn't know what a resume was. <laughs> and number two, I knew whatever it is, I don't have one. <laughs> In the Chesedisha world, there is no such thing as a resume. Everything is handed over to you. So for me to move to Manhattan and start looking for a job and I got to write my resume which high school I went to. I never went to high school. What should I write? That I have a degree in narrow-mindedness? I mean, I have a degree in Torah? It doesn't say in the Torah how to use Excel. Alright, let's go to uh, gigs. I go here and I look for Jewish. There you go. Call for singers, actors, native Hebrew speakers. I'm seriously pursuing acting because I think I can act. I've, I've been acting for 23 years of my life. I was pretending to be someone I'm not. But I also have something that most people don't have when they started acting. I do have a look for which there's a pretty high demand out there. A new opera is seeking performance for an in-progress presentation. There's pay in this. No pay. I feel overwhelmed by the choices I have in life now because I had very little choices before. It's like a kid who was born in a one-room basement. He never left that room all his life. And when he was 23 years old, someone took him, put him in Grand Central Station, and walked away. Everybody seems to have a destination. At least it seems like they know where they're going. And he has no idea. He sees people taking the train, people taking the subway, and he doesn't know the difference between a train and a subway. You know, people go to college, people are working, and people are watching movies, people are going out to the dinners, are having dates, and you have no idea where to start. Sometimes I feel when I'm in the subway that I want to stop every single person and have a conversation with them. I want to go up to them, hey, I say, hi, I'm loser, who are you? Oh, Joe, what do you do? I work on Wall Street. What is it like? When, where did you go to college? Where did you grow up? I want to know all walks of life because I might like one of them. <laughs> I mostly hang out with people who are ex-Hasidic, which is another thing which keeps me from fully getting into the other life because that keeps me connected, kind of. It's a good thing because you need a support group, you need friends and everything. 
Me, you never know. Do you really know God? You know you don't know God. Maybe he's gay. He's a little bit of everything. You know, he's a little bit of a she too. She's a little bit of a he. <laughs> I spoke last time to my parents, like the day after I got divorced. That day they found out why I got divorced, which is because I wasn't observant anymore. When they found out that this was the reason, they couldn't talk to me anymore. They don't care if I, if I, if I starve, they don't care if I'm homeless. They said it openly. Not to me. It came back to me. They tell my brothers not to talk to me, to excommunicate me. I can corrupt their minds. To them, it's like someone who is throwing away eternity over materialistic things that only exist in this world. But he isn't worth it. He's not worth nothing. To them, I'm worthless. I put an eggs on Craigslist. I put a posted ex-Hasidic Jew looking for love. I'm not going to say exactly what it says there. It's a little embarrassing. So uh, I got this response from this girl I'm texting now. We're texting like till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And she asked me if I have any plans today. Anyway, we decided we're going to meet at Starbucks for coffee. So I just got a text message. Let's see what she writes. I'm around looking for parking. Yay. Can't wait. I've never been on a date before. This is my first real date. I've been married, but I've never been on a regular, just a date, just two people meet each other, see if they like each other. This is my first date. I'm going to be on a date. I don't know. I think this shirt got some kind of a smell. I don't know. Just this is brand, brand, uh, it's a fresh shirt. Just took it off the cleanest. Maybe the cleanest put some smell on it. It's a good exercise for me to practice being around girls. I used to shiver when I had to approach a girl or shake a girl's hand. I was like, I was shivering. Because we grow up separated, men and women. We go to separate schools. I didn't know any girls besides my sisters. And you're not supposed to touch any other woman besides your wife. You don't really talk in a friendly way to other women besides your wife or your immediate family. I had this thing that if I touch a woman, God is going to strike me dead. I got a text message. Oh, wait, wait, we got a response. Got a response. We got a response. Sweet. She says, sweet. She likes me. All right. I'm going on a date. All right. Now I'm nervous. I have an uncle who uh, left about the same age as me, actually. You know, he was considered like the dropout of the family. We never talked about him even. He was like, why would you want to talk about a guy like that? He lived in Israel. And then he came, well, he came to America and he, came to, he was staying by us. I, I have no explanation why they let him into my house and why they let him stay there. They probably were trying to make him come back, you know. And I kind of liked him. <laughs> I thought he was a nice guy. I'm going to share something very awkward. It's going to show you how early I started questioning and how I didn't like. I was probably 10 years old or 11 years old. I was really young. I went into his room when he was gone. I remember looking at these deodorants and creams and like, you know, all these stuff I've never seen. And, and there were his jeans on the floor next to the closet. Jeans is like the clothing of the secular world. So Yeah, so I like closed the door behind me and I put on his jeans. 
put on his jeans and his room. <laughs> Never forget it. And I looked, I looked down on myself. I still sometimes look down on myself. You know, that I'm this cheap person. I have these kind of thoughts. I have these kind of feelings. I have these kind of, I have a dirty mind. I think you can compare it in a way to uh, people discovering that they're gay. And, you know, and having to deal with the guilt and with the shame. Question number one, which one of the following sentences includes a possessive pronoun? A. She stood up for people. Today I'm taking a test B, she is for high school. A mighty I get a booklet in the mail, and every booklet, at the end, it has an exam. And you can submit the exam online. Another name for the predicate in a sentence is... Uh, I want to just expand my, my knowledge, you know, for the purpose of blending into the world. C. Object D. Verb. This is a question which I'm not sure about the answer. I'm not sure whether it's a noun or a verb. So what do we do? Let's try this. A or D. I'm going to put two pieces of paper. One piece of paper is A. I write A. Other piece of paper, I write D. And then I mix them up. I'm not looking. And I pick out one, whichever comes out. All right, here you go. A. So I'm going to take A. When I was Hasidic, I had a lot of these experiences, you know, looking at non-Jewish people or secular people. Man, they're having such a good life. They can do anything they want. And now, I know that they can't do anything they want. This is a painful realization. There's something I'm dealing with right now. See, one of the things is, when I was Hasidic, I never put any effort in my body. You know, I had no reason to take a shower. Why should I take a shower? You know, I, I never thought, I'd, you know, I'd have to, maybe I'll meet a girl, I have to go on a date and I'm going to stink. You know, that, would never, that never would have happened, you know. And then there's the opening door things, saying thank you, you know. People don't say thank you. know, we all know each other. We're all like family, you know. There's, there's politically correct, which doesn't exist in the Hasidic world. There is no political correctness. You just say whatever you got in your stomach. You just spit it out. And that's basically a freedom that communities have, that brothers have, you know, family has. You know, when you're with your family, you just throw everything out there. You're not trying to, to come forward as something you're not. In other words, the secular culture has a lot of rituals too. <laughs> a lot of rituals in it, if you think about it. I think she's on the fourth floor, I don't remember. Yeah. I am at uh, Stephanie's place. I'm going up now. I'm going to meet with Stephanie. We're going to hang out a little bit, have something to eat, and uh, probably watch a movie. Stephanie is my friend. I don't think we're boyfriend-girlfriend yet. It's just we're very close. Um, she's a great woman. She's very smart and very beautiful. She doesn't like when I wear polos, so I don't know if she's going to like if I wear a t-shirt and sweatpants. How's it going? Good. How do I look with sweatpants and a t-shirt? Sloppy. Sloppy? <laughs> I mean, it's, but it's a... better than a polo, right? Yes. Right. Much better than a polo. Gotta get more t-shirts. We met through the internet. Did you go to like athletic and, uh, you know, we went out for, we went out a couple of times, you know, and uh, it evolved, you know, it became stronger and stronger, the bond. And this is the way it's now. It's pretty strong. A little stronger than I wanted it to be. Watch how I do this. Maybe I won't. 
but you will. How do you know? <laughs> because you're going to help me or you don't get to eat at me. Okay. <laughs> so Sounds you're going like to you're going to cut down the bottom. The the bottom is like the root part. We don't want to eat. All right. That. So and then she mentioned in her probably your first or second email that she was a radical yeah, feminist. Um, and I didn't even know exactly what a radical is. Although radical and terrorist are the same thing. But she seemed like someone who hates men, who thinks men are rapists, men are bad people. And I couldn't, I, I didn't like that. I mean, I'm not like that. I, I'm not a rapist. What, well, being, tre- being treated with man, man, men's yeah, privileges? Yeah, being treated makes, as a man, I, I do think that that is what makes you like... Because what you're saying is basically... That's the one thing that bothers me about Stephanie. She's way, way over-involved. It's a religion. I can't live with religion. You know, when people see him, they don't treat him the same as they treat me. I don't know, man. Male Can and I female. Finish? Please yeah, let all me right, finish okay. my thought. All right, I'm done with this. I'm done. <laughs> done with what? I don't know. I don't understand what you're saying. So it's like, it's okay. f- the whole the whole thing, the whole thing is foreign to me. I really, I mean, I mean, you, you've been, you've been busy with this subject for, I don't know how many years. And like, I'm so new to the subject and, you, and you're trying to, to like punch it into my head. I don't know. I'm getting. I'm. I'm just whatever. I'm worked up. Forget it. My contract for the apartment is running out in like three weeks. I mean, I'm gonna have. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna have where to live in a couple of weeks from now. And you know, I'm running out of cash. Seems like I have been pretty good for a few months, and you know, I'm hitting a dead end because I don't have where to live. I don't know what I'm gonna do. This past life is haunting me. This past, the past. You know, thinking God will punish you and how wrong you are. Maybe maybe life is so difficult for you because, you know, you're you're not observant and you're not doing God's will. I mean, I got a family in there. Something that fucks me up a lot, thinking about my family. It keeps awakening these feelings, you know. Sometimes nostalgic feelings. You know, there's family life and there's the get-togethers and there's, the, you know, the warmth... The only problem is all this warmth and this family values, all these things are just based on bullshit. You know, I wish it wasn't, but it is. You know, and I wish I could just let that all go, forget about it, but I, it just doesn't work that way. See, this, all these kind of stuff, they, 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 they go into the box, just within the junk box. Like, you know, like soap, my uh, lens solution. Just packing my stuff and... Uh, I'm moving out, and I'm, uh, I don't know where I'm going yet. I'm going to crash at some friends' places for a while. That's about it. That's what I'm going to do. Okay, this goes in here. I need one box for books, and one box for clothes, and I'm ready to go. You know, the Hasidic people don't live with roommates, and there is no single life. There is no such thing as living single. You're either living with your parents, or you're married. You don't live single. There's no such thing. It's uh, You're never on your own. I am really all by myself. I mean, who really cares for me? Where's the person who will say, you know, you're always welcome at my house to sleep, to eat. You know, I'm always going to be here for you. I think this is my biggest challenge. I mean, the the, 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 the belief challenge and looks and adjusting to the secular world these are nothing against this challenge of me becoming independent. Now this is four stories up, and it's like used to be a, a whatever, like a factory probably or something like that. 
Well, this is the place where I stay. So they got, it's got like two parts, the, the loft. Like a wall in the middle. On one side he built like beds, like bunk beds. And on the other side there's like a big empty room. And I have a tent here. The guy who lives here. He told me I could come and stay here for a couple of months. Maybe six months, you know, seven months, eight months. Until I get myself together and uh, find a way to support myself and be able to pay rent. So this is my tent. I got a sleeping bag. He gave me like a little rug, like a very thick rug to put under the tent so it's a little more cushioned I sit in there I use my computer I watch movies in there I mean I I use, I use my tent a lot that's where I live it's very it's very kind of cozy you know it's like very it's really I like it I pulled the plug on my life and everything I knew it's kind of the end of a chapter a chapter from which I have a lot of good memories I have more bad memories but a lot of good memories and this new chapter has a lot of sad memories in it. But everything I've been through since I left, all these misery I'm going through now, all these hardships, they seem kind of purposeful. It's like I'm going through all this to get somewhere. It's suffering I chose. It's something that I want. Choice makes all the difference. That's it. Loser Tursky realizes his dream of becoming an actor. He's had parts in numerous films and TV shows, including recurring roles in Transparent and the Amazon Prime series Undone. When we return, Maureen Fiedler talks with Lauren Drain, a former member of the Westboro Baptist Church. Lauren shares how she walked away from a ministry that she found divisive. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. I was sent to a child's funeral picket, 
And I just remember thinking, I hope no one comes up to me. I hope not a single person sees my sign. And I prayed that that day that I could just hide and not be there. That's Lauren Drain. She's talking about her experience as a former member of the Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. This week, we're revisiting conversations from our 2016 Escaping Religion series. We continue now with Maureen Fiedler, who spoke with Lauren about the church and why she left. The Westboro Baptist Church calls itself a unique picketing ministry, and that's certainly one way to think about it. The members are quite purposely outrageous in opposing homosexuality. They arrive at the funerals of soldiers and even children, holding signs with insulting messages like, God hates fags, and pray for more dead soldiers. It makes you wonder, what kind of person could pick at a funeral like that? And who are these people? We are about to meet one of them, Lauren Drain. For seven years, she held those hateful signs and attended services at the Kansas-based church. She has now left and written a book about her experience. It's called Banished. Lauren Drain, thanks so much for being willing to share your story with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, you first entered the Westboro Baptist Church at age 14 through your father. Why do you think he wanted you and indeed your whole family to be part of that church? It, it definitely involves more than one aspect. My father's always been very um, controlling. He's always had a very type A personality. I think my dad was searching for something to be a part of, and he was also intrigued by um, a position where he could be right in some type of what he saw to be a powerful group. Basically, when we joined the church back in 2001, despite their you know kind of hateful, judgmental message, they hadn't progressed to the extreme nature that they have now. They were not yet picketing funerals. They were not yet picketing military or children or tragedies like they've progressed to now. So I think we didn't know exactly what we were getting ourselves involved with. I don't think we would have been able to be as likely manipulated into it had we known that it was going to be getting more extreme. And of course, the Westboro Baptist Church is very small. I believe there are less than 50 members, and it's headed by a man named Fred Phelps, who is the pastor. It sounds like he preaches like a angry, vengeful God. Would that be right? Definitely, yes. He focuses on the anger and hatred more than anything. He preaches that the members of his church are the only members going to heaven, the only members loved by God, and um, like they are an elect, elite group of people. They're very judgmental, and they've basically decided if anyone doesn't stand up like they do against what they think are the big sins of the day, then they think that everyone's complacent or enabling those sins and going to hell. And the church is known, of course, for its focus on the issue of homosexuality. And a lot of churches preach against homosexuality, but none are outrageous or, frankly, as hateful in their expressions of that idea. So what is the idea behind a horrible sign like God hates fags? For them, they they want to make everything really 
bold and very like stunning. They're out for shock value. They're out to get, you know, media attention. They think they have this message of doom and of condemnation for the whole world. And it's it's a very kind of a narcissistic point of view is that they're the only people on earth that God loves and then everyone else is deserving of God's hate. They think it's their job to go around and warn people of, of sins and to judge people for those sins. Is there a certain amount of what you might call media savvy behind that? In other words, if you're totally outrageous, people are going to pay more attention to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Over the years, it's they've gotten more and more extreme, and they and that's how they maintain their attention. Like you said, they are a small group of people. They were about 70 when I was there. They're probably down to 50 or 40 now. And they're still getting media all the time, all the time. They know how to say shocking and disturbing and offensive things. And unless the media avoids it, they will continue to put themselves on the map. And you yourself, of course, picketed when you were a member of the church. And in the book, you say the church members get almost a chemical high from that. Is that what it was like for you? What was it like to picket? Yes, I would say when I first joined, I was I was very unsure about everything. I was unsure about the world. I was unsure about what I believed. You know, I was being inundated with this doctrine and then right away, like just pushed into all these protests. So I kind of just had to acclimate and, and discover for myself what it was. And I wanted to believe that these people were true. I wanted to believe that they had good intentions and that we simply were misunderstood. But the more hatred I saw from people, the more it kept me believing the brainwashing because we were told that we will be hated by men for God's namesake. And we kept being hated and people would say mean things or throw things at us. And it kept me thinking, well, I must be doing the right thing because people are hating me. So I'd have to say to answer your question, there was in the very beginning, I would see this high that the other members would get on their protests and their pickets. And I thought, well, is this a spiritual high? And I always hoped that it was. It wasn't until I started questioning things and, and eventually left. I wondered maybe it was a much different spirit that they had about them that gave them that possessive kind of nature to mock and tease people. There's an idea in Christianity, and you alluded to this a minute ago, indeed it's in many religions, that being faithful to a message is hard. You're not supposed to be in lockstep with the rest of secular society. Was that a message you heard at that church? Yes, the main message was that friendship with the world is an is an enmity with God, which means all these people in the world, you don't want to be loved by them, because if you are, then that's a bad sign that you're not godly. So that also kept me there as well. And I know that a lot of the other children, you know, being obedient to their parents and learning these scriptures and being told that's what they mean, that keeps them there also. Now, there came a breaking point for you when you thought, I just can't take this anymore. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. There's a couple points in my life that hit me while at the church. Um, Inside, watching the members being treated certain ways was definitely very kind of devastating. Treated how? Well, I would see members get kicked out and separated from their families. I would see some people's sin get excused and other people's sin was fully punished. I would ask questions about verses to my parents. I would ask questions about verses to the pastor and to the other members because I thought it was necessary to learn and to grow. And I thought um, we didn't have it all right. 
I didn't think we had it right by praying for people to die or for thanking God for people dying. So you almost suppress your own curiosity. You suppress your own instinct because you know that you're going to get punished for it or humiliated for it. And eventually they threaten to kick you out of the house or out of the church or out of your family. And that's pretty scary. And you were dismissed by the church just before your 22nd birthday for being what they called a whore. Where did that come from? Good question. They kicked me out without me knowing and then said that it was because I was a whore. And I think the real reason they kicked me out is because I started asking questions. So Mm. they made an example out of me. Now, your family, of course, is still in the church. How do they view you now? Do you ever have contact with them? I have, I have not been able to contact my family in six years. So wow. I don't know. I know what they've said on national television. I've seen some, some things my father has said about me, and they say I'm no longer their daughter. They don't miss me. They don't love me, that you know I'm going to hell, and that a lot of other mean things, unless they somehow have a chance to see, see differently. I don't think they'll change that message. Let me ask you a different kind of question. Um, I'm sure you have some guilt and shame over these years in this church, but I can also imagine that it might be hard for some of our listeners to sympathize fully with you. You were between the ages of 14 and 22 when you were in the church. For at least part of that time, not exactly a child. And you didn't leave by choice. You were kicked out. Did you have any sense of moral outrage at what your church was doing as you were in that church? Yes, I did. But you didn't um, feel but you didn't feel free to say no. No, of course not. Uh not at that time. At that time if I, had I said no, my my family would have probably kicked me out right then and there. It's very hard to make these these decisions. You have to subtly ask questions. You have to subtly try and change things unless you're willing to give up your family for life. And I had a three-year-old sister, a five-year-old brother, who I loved dearly, who I'd be abandoning behind by leaving, a 16-year-old sister, my mother. And that's that's a very hard thing to ask anyone to do, is to leave your family for life. And since you've left, have you ever been afraid that God might punish you for picketing the funerals of children or carrying those hateful signs? No. No, I don't. If anything... I have a much better relationship with God than ever had before. I've asked for forgiveness multiple times, and I still do. For anyone that it asks me, you know, if I was sorry, I, I continue to say I was sorry. I feel God's forgiven me. I don't do those things anymore. I've made an outspoken apology, and I've tried to convince others to leave. Mm. So I think I've, I'm doing the best I can to make up for lost time, but I think each person has different things they're going to have to deal with in terms of what God may judge you for. Lauren Drain shares reflections and her experiences in the memoir, Banished, My Years in the Westboro Baptist Church. Since the first broadcast, Lauren has worked as a registered nurse and a fitness trainer. When we return, Joshua Saffron reflects on what it was like growing up in a Wiccan coven and then later, Discovering His Jewish Heritage. I'm Umbreen Khan. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices.
Well, a lot of times when you say I was born into a coven of witches, you know, it's like you tell them that you're from another planet or something. Uh, sometimes people think I'm joking because it's just so impossible that <laughs> that could be true. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We're revisiting conversations from our 2016 Escaping Religion series. First-person reflections growing up inside small, insular communities, and then later choosing a different path. Maureen Fiedler picks it up from here. Joshua Safran was born in a San Francisco commune in 1975 in a coven of witches. His mother described herself as a Wiccan, a radical, a freak. She worshipped a pantheon of goddesses, spirits, and energies, and was determined to keep her son out of the mainstream and off the grid. So he spent his early childhood as a kind of nomad, hitchhiking for thousands of miles, living in buses, vans, and even an ice cream truck. Then one day he discovered he was Jewish. And after years of wandering, he finally felt he had found a home. Saffron recounts his very unusual childhood in a new book, Free Spirit, Growing Up on the Road and Off the Grid. And he joins me today from California. Welcome back to Interfaith Voices, Joshua. Maureen, thank you for having me back. We're going to jump right in with this unusual detail. As a child, you wanted to grow up to become a woman? Tell us about that. Well, you have to understand that when you're a little kid, of course, you you know only what's around you and you think what's going on around you is is normal. So, yeah, I was brought up in the early years by a coven of witches and there weren't any male faces around me. And I was taught to believe that birthing a child was sort of the highest and best thing that a human being could do. And I wanted to do that, too. And as you can imagine, when I was about four, this realization that I won't be able to birth a child was devastating for me. And then I had this bright thought, well, maybe even though I'm a boy, I can grow up to be a woman and then I can have a baby. So this was not some kind of uh, a movement that a transgender person would have. No. And in fact, the witches that surrounded my mother actually began to turn their backs on her when, you know, it became apparent that they had a small warlock in their midst. And um, they weren't ready to have a boy. But more than that, they weren't ready to really have a child. I was the first child born into the coven and they weren't ready to stop changing the world and start changing diapers. I see. So for those who may not know, what is Wicca and what do Wiccans believe? Well, the community that my mother was a part of was a group of radical feminists in the mid-1970s that decided to take religion and faith back from what they saw as a, an evil patriarchy. And they attempted to resurrect or, or recreate sort of an amalgam of Celtic, European, and Middle Eastern goddess worship. And they viewed themselves as witches, um, but not Halloween-style witches, but rather good witches who would tap into these holidays like Beltane and Samhain and connected themselves back to the pagan tradition. And did they have any special practices? I know we think about witches in connection with fire or perhaps healing. They did have a lot of moon-based worship. Um, there was a, a, a hill formation in Northern California called the Tor that they used to go up on and they would drop LSD and they would reconnect with their um, – past lives and astrally project their spirits and they would dance all night until dawn. My goodness, that's something. From your point of view as a child, what did your mother's 
Wiccan religion mean to you? Well, in the beginning, it meant that I had a lot of moms around um, who were often distracted. And I could tell even as a little kid that there was something afoot, that they were in a sense contriving or making up something because they always said, oh, my goddess, instead of, oh, my God. Unless something truly dramatic happened and then they would forget and they would say, oh, my God. And so there was already a little bit of a contradiction that I was seeing. And then as I got older, I really began to catch part of what my mother called the anti-man vibe. And I did to some degree feel unwelcome, like I was already being painted as a future kind of rapist and and batterer just because I was a man. And as part of that, my mother began to move away from the Wiccan movement. Let's talk for just a minute about how you ended up at that place. Um, Your story really begins before you were born with your mother and her decision in the late 60s to reject mainstream society. But in fact, you say your entire childhood was a reaction to this one important choice to raise you off the grid. What do you think she hoped for your life? Well, I mean, I think my mother really believed that when we took to the road in 1980 that we were going to find an anarchist kind of utopian commune and that I would be raised there to be sort of physically strong and intellectually powerful, you know, learning Karl Marx and and worshiping the, the tree spirits and that kind of thing, and that at some point, in almost kind of a messianic way, there would be an end of days when the United States became entangled in another crazy war, and then I would be called upon to step in as a leader. I think that was sort of her vision for me. What was she like personally? You know, my mother uh, was and is, you know, an incredibly kind of um, charismatic, bubbly, excited and excitable person, but really had a hard time sort of focusing on one thing at a time. And so whether it was, you know, stopping nuclear power or, you know, worshiping the goddess, she tended to kind of shift from, from one thing to another, which, you know, had its ups as it, every day was, was, was exciting. It was an adventure. You never knew what we were going to do that day. But at other times it was sort of uh, distressing because as a child, at least for me, I did crave a kind of stability and certainty, which I didn't get a lot of. And what are some of the earliest memories you have from your childhood? Well, you know, one of my earliest memories is actually of waking up alone in a little apartment in San Francisco and my mother had left and she started to, to go out on her own at night because she sort of got bored being a mother of a, of a small child and sort of the, the panic of where is she, where is she, you know, um, and then you know, she eventually came back and, I, you know, I was mad at her. I, I remember these women that we lived with and sort of a lot of early exposure to to women, you know, women's anatomy and sexuality um, that was to some degree kind of distressing to me. And then various protests and street marches, which again were, were mostly scary. Um, a lot of police and chanting and banging on things, that kind of thing. Hmm. You write too that your mother was training you to become a warlock. Uh, really? She, what, she, what does that mean? <laughs> well, you know, I don't know what it means because I've never actually met a warlock, but it was it was something like the male equivalent of a witch. Um, when I was born, this this coven of witches did my astrological charts that predicted that I would be a warlock. And my my mother um, very strongly believes in in extrasensory perception and clairvoyance, and so she was really trying to train my mind to use my third eye, the one that society didn't want me to know about, to be able to do chakra readings, to read people's minds, to be able to even start cars and lift objects with the power of of my thoughts. What other memories do you remember from your childhood of Wiccan celebrations or even sort of worship services? Well, a lot of it was sort of a sense of 
you know, ironically, like begging to go to bed because these things often went all night. But also some of them were scary. I mean, there, a common theme was for these witches to have staffs, magic, magical staffs that had like animal skulls on them, for example. And there was a fair amount of um, use of psychedelics, LSD and, and hallucinogens that both were, you know, it's, it's scary to be around people who are in kind of incoherent, babbling, altered states. And also, as they described sort of the, my soul being blown out of my body and, and you know, watching people go into these kind of visions as a young person is not um, what was scary for me. And, and quite frankly, kind of place kind of an ominous flavor over a lot of mm. their ceremonies. When did you realize that this was not how other kids lived? Well, I experimented with school. At my own insistence, I started first grade, although I didn't finish it. And my mother had sort of warned me that there was there were these straight people, meaning people who were part of mainstream society. So I went to school sort of prepared to look out for them and, and ended my first day realizing they were all straight. We were the only people who weren't. But it wasn't really until sixth grade when at that point I insisted that I go to school and I came in, you know, covered in pine needles and tree sap wearing thrift store clothing patched with paisley fabric after having, you know, discussed Karl Marx for years in the wilderness and came in and found a very Darwinian reality in middle school. And it was pretty traumatic and also very revealing because I realized that I was completely out of touch with the country that I lived in. But eventually your mother met a man and you came to live in a somewhat normal apartment in Washington State with running water, no less. And that's when you discovered your Judaism. And the story begins when you walked by the cabin of a neighbor. What did he say to you? Well, he came out and introduced himself, and he asked my mother, he said, you know, where are you from? And my mother said, oh, well, we're from the Bay Area, from you know, San Francisco. And he said, no, you're not. And my mother said, what do you, what do you mean? And he said, you're Jews, right? Ain't no, ain't no launchmen from the Bay Area. There are no Jews that are originally from the Bay Area, was his point. And, and my mother said, yeah, we, you know, we are Jews. How did you know? And he said, your kid's got a rabbi's nose. <laughs> and, that was, and that was my discovery. And then you <laughs> asked your mom, Claudia, about that. And I'd like you to read that excerpt from your book here about that conversation, if you would. Uh, I would be happy to do that. So we walked down the trail and I said, and I called my mother Claudia, always Claudia, because uh, she was a mother, but she was more than that. She was a, a woman, a, f a full human being, and being a mother was only part of it. So I, I was supposed to call her Claudia, which was her name. And I said, Claudia, what was that thing he said we were? What thing? There was something he knew we were because of my nose. Oh, Jews. Yeah. What is that? I never told you we were Jewish? No. What is it? Jews, you know, like Einstein, Freud, Marx. Being my mother's son, I knew who these men were, but I didn't see the connection. Like, we're related to them? Sort of. And then she gave me a very Jewish answer. You know, Joshi, I don't know exactly what it means to be Jewish. We'll have to go to the library and look it up. But I was in the library now, riding the reading room through space and time, discovering that I was part of something, something profound. I was the descendant of an ancient tribe that had emerged from the mists of prehistory to introduce the world to God, to write the Bible, and to shine unto the nations like a beacon of righteousness. We had been scattered to the wind, driven to the four corners of the earth, oppressed and demeaned time and time again, yet we wandered on, excelling in isolation wherever we went. We didn't need to be normal like everyone else. We were Jews. When the library closed, I walked through the darkness as an only child no more. 
Now I knew I descended from the seed of Jacob. And somewhere out there were a million of my nameless brethren clinging to diasporic rocks just like me, but thriving nonetheless. And so how did that moment make you feel connected to something greater? Well, it was amazing. I I was always the kid who was different. I mean, we didn't celebrate Christmas or Thanksgiving or anything at all other than, you know, some strange pagan holidays. And I didn't have a past. I didn't have uh, any connection to anything. And all of a sudden, there was this word that described why we were different. Looking back as an adult, are you angry at your mom for the life she put you through? Did you ever feel you were deprived of a normal childhood? Well, I was angry at my mother for about a decade, uh, most of my teenage years, both because, absolutely because of not only the deprivations that I had to suffer, but the fact that many of those deprivations were intentional. I mean, you know, we could have lived in poverty with running water and electricity, but my mother elected not to. And in a, to a greater degree, I was had a really hard time forgiving my mother because of uh, the man that she ended up marrying. She ended up marrying a, a violent alcoholic and, you know, we suffered a lot at his hands. So it was, I, I felt betrayed by her. And, and to some degree, I felt like my entire childhood had been an experiment in, you know, <clears throat> sort of naive searching for a ridiculous utopia. But I grew to, to forgive my mother in part because we kind of grew up together. You know, when I went to college, she went to college. When I got a job, she got a job. And my mother at one point said, you know, I'm amending the old phrase. So I turned on, tuned in, dropped out, and now I'm crawling back. Joshua Saffron relates the story of his early life and faith journey in his memoir, Free Spirit, Growing Up on the Road and Off the Grid. He's a partner in the Rudder Law Group and is a recognized advocate for survivors of domestic violence. Saffron's work was profiled in the documentary Crime After Crime, and he's received multiple awards for his advocacy, including the Pursuit of Justice Award from the California Women's Law Center. The original Escaping Religion series producers included Laura Correll, Josh Gleason, and Maureen Fiedler. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.